Welcome to episode five of the CrossGen Life podcast. I'm Dr. Rich Malheim, recording this on a hot and humid summer day, hidden away in a secret lakeside log cabin somewhere in southern Minnesota. In the episodes ahead, the CrossGen Life podcast will bring you thought leaders and systems change pioneers, movers and shakers and systems breakers from across the church and society, working to connect the wisdom of the elder and the wonder of the child in the same sacred space each week. Today's episode is part five of a six-part series. The topic is Disruptive Change and the Exodus Today. It features Dr. David Lowe's, founder of WorkingPreacher.org, former seminary president at Lutheran School of Theology at Philadelphia, and currently senior pastor at Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. David's talk was recorded live at a recent CrossGen Life conference in Estes Park, Colorado. You can find more about our upcoming October 2018 conference at crossgenconference.com. Here's Dr. David Lowe's. We share almost everything that matters to us in story, and we share a whole lot of things that don't really matter to us in story. Um, and I want to uh, play that out a little bit, both in terms of the biblical text and in terms of our ministry. I thought I'd see if we can. Are we able to run that little? Okay. Yeah, if we can. This is a story that uh, some of the folks I've been working with put together to try and explain what we've been up to um, and so it, uh, we'll just watch that for a minute or two. started with an email. It was this long, meandering <laughs> email yeah. that began, uh, Michael, I'd like to invite you into a thought experiment ended with, you may think I'm crazy, but... And I just had the sense, this is the time. A chance to really try something different. We have these incredibly rich histories and legacies. And I think we have enough of a risk tolerance mm -hmm. and enough confidence in each other and the, mm -hmm. the staff faculty and boards that surround us that we're willing to take a gamble, but it's still unknown. Theological education in the United States has been going through a lot of challenges. You know, one of the greatest needs that I see in the church right now is that a significant number of our rostered leaders are going to retire in the next 10 years. We don't have enough leaders for the church. is an unknown future. We are going down a path that others have not walked and the realization that we, we don't know exactly where it is we're going to get to. Disruptive change is not always transformative, but transformative change is always disruptive. What I thought about the new venture when I first heard about it. Well, I think uh, certainly there was a bit of surprise. The thing I was, I was surprised. Whenever there are changes to our home and changes to things that we care about, it can be a little displacing. Knowing that along the way, um, there's gonna be some loss. When I first heard about the new venture, I was, I had some apprehensions. What we love so dearly um, is not going to continue in its present form. This idea of a time of holy uncertainty and change in the church um, and holy experimentation is happening on a national church-wide level. It's happening 
on a synodical level. We're seeing it in our congregations with a lot of new mission startups. So it made sense to me that it was happening in a seminary. We're Easter people. And I just think about the, the story that we, that we tell about Christ and about the road that we walk with him, which we all know has an ending that, that on the one hand we're sure of, but the path to get there, we're not entirely sure of. And it always leads us down ways that we can't imagine. about um, the changes because, I mean, I think change is good. I'm excited to figure out how ministry can be done. The commitment to providing full tuition scholarships for all full-time ELCA residential students. Kind of a hopeful expectation at this point. We're going to try to design this new venture in such a way that it'll be more accessible for more people. Our hope is to create a more cooperative sense of theological education where students aren't paying for or even earning their training, they're receiving their training as a gift of the church. But the church is really going to take a look at the new realities of what it means to be church in the 21st century. We want to prepare leaders that are more responsive for the world the church is actually in. By coming together, we'll have the richness of both heritages, but also the unique context for ministry. We believe that are future generations of leaders and teachers and practitioners can be trained in the most effective way possible. The word says that we're, um, everything in Christ is a new creature. And so isn't this great that the seminary will now be a new creature? We believe God is calling us to a new chapter in the life of theological education. Thanks, we can switch over to the PowerPoint, um, cool. So uh, part of why I wanted to share that is just simply, you know, in four minutes to share with you what's been totally consuming of my entire life the last 10 months. So uh, gives you a little sense of what we're hoping for. But the other is to think about story and the power of story and the, the intentionality with which we tell it. Um, in telling that story, we tried to begin by recognizing some of the uncertainty and the disruption uh, that was occurring in, among staff and, and faculty, and, and to be honest about that, to not sugarcoat it. At the same time, we moved with real intentionality what was hopeful uh, and what the promise of this venture is, and, and, and it's not haphazard. Uh, and when we are telling our stories, we're usually trying to think about, uh, unconsciously or unconsciously, it's, it's a journey. And we're wanting to meet people at one place and, and create some kind of opening, and then hoping that through that story, we move them, we go with them, to another place. That's what stories do. They transport us into different kinds of, of realities. Um, and again, my big pitch is that the biblical witness is best understood as this collection of stories, this collection of, of past sightings of God that helps us make sense of and see God in our own lives today. So I want to uh, flip back and spend a little bit more time in the Exodus story uh, and then move to how that helps us think about what we're about and trying to engage and pull a new generation into this Christian story that we have found life-giving and want to share with others. 
Um, so back to Exodus 3, um, Moses in the burning bush. Uh, God gives what should be incredibly good news. I've heard the cry of my people. Uh, I will respond. I will rescue them. I will lead them out of Egypt. And Moses again answers with this really peculiar question. So that all sounds good, but when I get there and they ask me who sent me, who shall I say? And it took a little time last time to unpack uh, in the ancient Near East the power of, of names, the, the way in which names reveal one's true character, and so that those who know our name have a, a certain hold on us. And so what Moses is really doing is asking for uh, God to give something of God's self that Moses can control, not just know, but have a handle on, have the upper hand. And it's in that context that God says, uh, I am who I am, or if you take the future tense of the, of the Hebrew more seriously, I will be who I will be. You cannot put me in a box. Um, you cannot contain me. I remember uh, one of my favorite stories growing up was uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and I remember when the children are first in uh, Narnia and it's all winter and they're talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver uh, and they're describing the coming of Aslan and at one point uh, uh, I think Lucy says, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't sound very safe. <laughs> and the answer back is, Mr. Beaver, well of course he's not safe. You know, you can't tame, you can't domesticate God. He's not safe, but he's good. Right? And that becomes kind of this pivotal sense of, of if, if you walk into this Christian story, you are walking into an adventure that you cannot control. Um, and that's God's word to Moses. If you want to know who I am, you've got to come along for the ride. Which again says to me that faith was never meant to be a head thing only. Lots of things we can learn and know and remember, but it's not meant to be a head thing only. Nor is it only a heart thing about emotions, about feeling good or excited or whatever else. It's, it's an experiential thing, and it's an experiential thing that takes place over time. And I think sometimes we um, imagine that if we just craft the right kind of worship service or have even the best kind of intergenerational event, people will get it. And it's like, no, this, is, this labor of shepherding, of caring, of tending, of drawing people into story, this is over months and years um, because that's the way you truly get to know someone. You get to know and trust and care about and rely on the people, the most significant people in your life over time. And that's also true of faith. So one of the cautions or one of the, the words of wisdom is to, is to be in it for the long haul uh, and to not let the kind of ups and downs that are along the way dictate your whole view of things because it is a journey and it will take some time. The second thing, and this is moving into chapter 4, is that then uh, Moses' questions aren't done. It, it, the, the I am was not satisfying <laughs> or not entirely satisfying. And he keeps asking other questions, saying, I'm, you know, I, don't, I don't think they're going to believe me. And the Lord gives him the staff that can throw down and turn into the serpent. And, and he says, I'm not very eloquent. And he says, that's all right, I'll, I'll send someone with you. Um, and what I think about this story, now this is Moses, right? This is like the pivotal figure of the Old Testament story. And yet he comes across, uh, I mean, this is, you know, Moses is not your alpha male leader. <laughs> he's not a beta leader. Like, he's delta at best, <laughs> you know? And, but to every weakness he exposes, to every vulnerability he shares, to every piece of the brokenness of his story that he's willing to un, uh, disclose, the Lord accompanies him and gives him company. 
which is the other thing I would, I would encourage us to really take to heart. You cannot do this work alone. This is, in part, the power of this kind of conference. It's birthing cross-gen together because nothing of significance happens on your own. Um, but when you leave here, you will need to keep cultivating those relationships. Some of them will be with people here online. Others will be on your staff or in your community. But you cannot do this work alone. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you know the story. Moses goes back with Aaron. Aaron does a lot of the speaking. They're confronting Pharaoh. Uh, things aren't going as well as they'd like. The plagues come again and again and again. Uh, and, and the repeating line is that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, in order that, and it's a really peculiar verse near the beginning of chapter 10, God says so that you may tell your children uh, about the mighty acts of the Lord and that your children will know how foolish Pharaoh was to oppose me. That there's this peculiar, and this is the very beginning of the kind of exodus proper, of, of the end of the plagues uh, and moving into the last plague, which is the slaughter of the firstborn, and then that leads to the exodus itself. And it all begins by God's concern about what we tell future generations. That this whole thing in some ways is done so that Israel will have a story to share with its future generations. Uh, and then at the end of, the, of chapter 12, um, it kind of runs through all of the ways Moses is giving instructions to all the households. Uh, about the way they're to observe the Passover, what kind of lamb and, and how to slaughter and what to do with the blood and to cover the lentils and all these kind of instructions, these priestly instructions uh, that will be now the pattern of Exodus, the observation of Exodus from now and into the future. And then again, the closing line. So it begins with the concern about what we will tell emerging generations and then it closes at the end of all that with one more line. And when your children ask you, why are you doing this? You can tell them and you bring them into the story of the Exodus. So um, I love this line from the poet Muriel Ruckheiser. The universe is made up of stories, not atoms. And in our first time together, we talked a little bit about why. Why is the universe made of stories? Well, how is it that stories connect us and are powerful and reveal truth to us and propel us into action? Are there ways in which we share our beliefs? Um, but I want to kind of, again, I don't think we can underestimate the power of story. Um, and one way to think about our situation, our time today, um, recognizing the power of story, and I, I put this slide up here too, it's from Joshua 4, it's not only the Exodus story. Again and again, there's this constant theme of tending the story in order to pass it on. So in Joshua 2, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? You'll be able to tell them. This consistent theme that holds the disparate stories of Israel together is a desire to pass on the story to each other. So one way to think about our situation today, right? We look at the stats, the dismal statistics, uh, and we assume that this is the problem. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough Sunday school teachers. We don't have enough people showing up for worship. We don't have enough baptisms. We don't have enough, we don't have enough over and over and over. And I want to shift our, our thinking um, about how we see statistics like that. And I want to say at this point, I don't think this is the problem. Um, I actually think this is the temptation. The temptation is to believe that's our problem. And because the challenge is when you think that this is the problem, we don't have enough. People, teachers, infants, money, you name it. Um, all you can really do is what you've always done. 
but do it better. Except it's not just that, it's do it better. <laughs> and I think in some ways the last uh, 30 years of our church history is a series of experiments in doing what we've always done, but doing it better. So we add uh, PowerPoints to our, uh, to our services so that, or, or screens and projectors into our worship spaces so that we can do PowerPoint sermons. We haven't rethought at all the nature of proclamation or what we're hoping to accomplish through the sharing of the word. All we've done is what we've always done, but a little better. I mean, think about PowerPoint. It's like the perfectly named technology. Make your same old points, but now with power. <laughs> you know? um, or contemporary Christian music. Um, you know, it's like, got to have a drum set. <laughs> we haven't thought about the purpose of liturgy, the purpose of worship. We haven't thought about the power of song to gather us together or the way in which we can share leadership or draw people in. It's really the kind of same old thing, but now with a drum set. So I think this is really the challenge. What I want to invite us to is, is take more seriously um, our need, our challenge, our opportunity to cultivate stories. So I want to think about our situation differently. So if this isn't the problem, instead it's the temptation, what is the problem? Well, I'd put it this way. Um, because we are narrative beings, life only makes sense in story. And the great challenge of this age is that we don't know our story very well anymore. It is the, the biblical story doesn't furnish our imagination the way it once used to. Um, and a lot of this is simply the, the reality that our, our culture, which I, I understand entirely the concerns that, that people avoid. They say we should not call the United States a Christian nation. I get that. I mean, I, for all kinds of reasons, um, not least of which is so many of the founders of this country wouldn't have identified as Christian the way we do today. But at the same time, you know, I think it's, I understand why people want to call the U.S. a Christian nation. Um, because no other faith tradition has had nearly the influence or impact that Christianity has. Um, and our culture was for a very long time pretty invested in congregational life. Uh, you had political leaders from Benjamin Franklin through to Dwight David Eisenhower actually encouraging people to go to church. It's Eisenhower at one point rather famously says or infam infamously says, I don't care what church they go to, as long as they go to church. Because there's this long-standing link between participation in a Christian congregation and citizenship. Um, and you can critique it or you can extol it. It doesn't matter. That's just kind of the way it was. And so the Christian story permeated our culture in a variety of ways. For almost a century and a half, children learning to read in a public school in the United States were taught with what was called the New England Primer. And the New England Primer was saturated with biblical stories. It began by teaching children the alphabet. A is for Adam, in whom all sin. B is for Babel, and on and on. You learn the alphabet, and you learn the Christian story, one and the same. Our uh, school calendars were dictated around, around two other calendars. One was the agrarian calendar of, of harvest, uh, and the other was the Christian calendar, uh, which not only gave time for children to celebrate uh, the, the major festivals of the church with their families, but actually prepared them to do so by teaching the story. Uh, and other elements of our popular culture. Uh, Andy Williams died a few years ago. I saw a PBS special about his life after that, and I had no idea how influential Andy Williams and his brothers were, but for 25 years, the Andy Williams Christmas show 
was one of the mainstays of American television. And for 25 years, it used that vehicle to introduce some of the most significant uh, musical groups of that era. So the Jackson Five and Michael Jackson got a start there and the Osmond family. Um, but also for 25 years, the, the, the Williams brothers taught the American public the Christian story, the Christmas story, through songs and through prayer and through scripture readings. Um, and that has more or less evaporated. Now, when I, reckon, when I say that, I don't mean to kind of pine for a nostalgic past, and I definitely don't mean to stir up the culture wars. I just mean to, for us to notice this is different. We're in a different cultural environment in terms of the culture's relationship to our church. And the question becomes, have we done anything different? Like we were getting a lot of help from our teachers and entertainers and political leaders, uh, which is no longer there. Have we changed what we're doing? Which is, I think, what draws us together now, to recognize that what may have worked really well when the whole culture was behind you doesn't work as well now. That was part five in a series of six on disruptive change and the church today. Thanks to Dr. David Lowe's of Mount Olivet Lutheran in Minneapolis. This talk was recorded live at a recent CrossGen Life conference in Estes Park, Colorado. If you'd like to attend a future CrossGen conference, including the one coming up in October, you can find out the latest information at crossgenconference.com. You can also find out more information about Faith5 at faith5.org and about the great CrossGen Life curriculum and resources at faithinc.com, F-A-I-T-H-I-N-K.com. I'm Dr. Rich for the CrossGen Life podcast, reminding you that in CrossGen Life, Every age has gifts we need, and every age has needs we gift.